What you're trying to do is make sure you have that passive income. You could you could define it as optimize an investment portfolio. There's different ways to think about the market. And the way that you figure that out is actually go talk to customers. So all these people, you know, whether it's the uh, military people, the entrepreneurs, you know, whoever is in your your customer set. When you talk to them, ask them about their goals. And that's what, this is what's very interesting is like they will be able to tell you what they're trying to do very specifically. They might not know the solution. In fact, they probably won't. Right. Um, you okay. Can talk to a hundred cooks. So they're going to be able to tell you. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Jay Haynes. Jay, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jess. Thanks for having me. So tell people about your business. Let's start there. Yeah, sure. I'm the founder and CEO of Thrive, and that's THRV.com, Thrive Without the Vowels. We build uh, product management software for enterprise teams, and it's all based around jobs to be done, innovation methods, and jobs theory. So I think most of us can guess what that means, but can you give us an example or can you give a, put a little more meat on those bones of what those management systems look like? Yeah, sure. So the basic idea behind jobs theory is very, very simple, kind of deceptively simple. It's that customers are actually not buying products. What they're doing is hiring those products to get a job done. So what does that mean for entrepreneurs and companies? Well, it really means that when you're looking at a market, the market should be defined by the goal the customer is trying to achieve, not the product. And entrepreneurs make this mistake all the time because they love their product and they think there's a big market for their product. <laughs> and it turns out that products and solutions and technologies change dramatically over time. But what remains really, really stable is the goal, the job to be done that a customer needs to achieve. And I can give some good concrete examples. You know, Microsoft, huge company, very successful, thought there was a big market for iPods. And they used the very traditional way to figure out how big that market was. Apple had sold 200 million iPods at $150 a pop. So logically, using traditional definitions, that's a $30 billion market, which is a big market even for Microsoft. So they fired up a product team and launched what was known as the Microsoft Zune to compete with the iPod. And uh, Jess, I assume you didn't own a Microsoft Zune because almost no one did. It was a huge failure. Microsoft lost $300 million in one quarter. And why is that? How do, how do companies and entrepreneurs make that mistake? Well, it's because they're not really thinking about what their customer is trying to achieve. They're thinking about their products. In fact, we have chief product officers at companies because you know companies build and sell products. So, but that is a fatal mistake. And Theodore Levitt, who was a famous Harvard Business School professor in the 60s, put it simply, customers don't want a quarter-inch drill. They want a quarter-inch hole. And that's a pretty famous quote that summarizes jobs to be done. So that's the starting point is whether you're an entrepreneur or a company and you're making an investment in your product roadmap, the first step is to define the market from your customer's point of view and the job that they're hiring your product to get done. You know, I think a lot of us probably got exposed to this through like competing against luck or some of the Clayton Christians and stuff. That, at least that's where I got my start. And I, I chased it down the rabbit hole a little further and started, you know, following some of the Bob Mesta stuff and other things. I'm interested in how you got introduced. 
Yeah, sure. I was lucky enough to study with Clay in the late 90s when I was back in business in the year that he published The Innovator's Dilemma. Mm. And your listeners probably know Clay Christensen from Disruption, which was a phenomenon that he observed where companies would overserve the market and a competitor would come in and disrupt the market with a product that was actually worse. It was lower cost and worse. And then it would take over share in the market. And he used mini mills as a, as a classic example. But you can see this even with Microsoft Excel. You know, Excel, you can do anything with it from, you know, statistical analysis to building, you know, financial models, et cetera. But then Google Docs comes along with a very simple spreadsheet that helps you with stuff that's just very easy and it's free. So it starts to take share. So he was really interested in disruption, and that was an amazing phenomenon. But it didn't tell you what to do about it. It didn't tell you how to really compete in the market. So as his career developed, and mine did as well, he started really focusing on jobs to be done. And that's where he published The Innovator's Solution. And so his his ideas were really, really powerful. And I, in my early career, had worked in buyouts, buying companies. This is in the early 90s, when you could buy a company for five, five times cash flow and you know use three times debt and cut some costs and you could create 20% equity returns. Those days are long gone. But I happened to be involved in buying Steinway & Sons, which I look back on it as is literally the least innovative company on the planet. They are selling the same product they invented 150 years ago, and they make it in the same way, and that's their whole brand. And I was always interested in innovation and growth, so why didn't Steinway innovate in music markets? Music markets have, have undergone unbelievable amounts of innovation, and yet Steinway didn't capitalize on any of those. So that was always a curious question to me, and then that's when I started studying with Clay, and then I went and worked as a product manager at Microsoft in the 90s in the Windows group thinking, wow, they're the dominant company in the world. I'm going to learn their secret sauce and figure out how to innovate through Microsoft. And of course, what I discovered was they didn't really have a great process, not surprisingly. And they were using you know, state-of-the-art at the time in the late 90s. And then I went and ran a couple Silicon Valley back, you know, Sand Hill Road companies, thinking that these firms that invested in these you know, world-renowned companies, that they had the secret sauce. And I was going to learn the secret sauce from them. And, you know, of course, they didn't. They're just making lots of different bets. And if they have good bets, you know, one of them turns into Google. And then the other 19 bets that they lost all their money on don't matter because you made, you know, 300 times your money on one investment, essentially playing a lottery like it's a casino. So that was frustrating to me. So, you know, about 10 years ago or so in my early 40s, that's when I really started to say, okay, I need to take what Clay's writing about and look into this much more interestingly than anything else I've discovered. And that's where I really started to work on Jobs Be Done and work with really great companies on using and adopting Jobs Be Done. And so eight years I started Thrive when I realized that product teams and executives, you know, don't really want more PowerPoint presentations than Excel spreadsheets. And if nothing else, Jobs Be Done creates a lot of data. It creates really great insights into customers, markets, competitors, segments, you know, et cetera. And so in order to use that data effectively, that's what software is really good at. That's why we hire software to get jobs done, because it helps you use lots of data really effectively. And that was that was why I founded Thrive. So, you know, you've got all these fancy customers, eBay, Twitter, Microsoft, Dropbox, American Express, Oracle, Target, Lego, Viacom, right? When you think about, let, let's take Viacom, because I, I, I love media stuff, okay? What are, what are the aha moments? Like when... What happens when people start to realize they can think and turn in the quarter-inch hole instead of the quarter-inch drill? Yeah, that's a great question. And what I would say is 
it's generally not one aha moment. And, you know, this is kind of the myth of entrepreneurship where, you know, Steve Jobs sits around and he's in the shower and he's like, we need to build the iPhone. And then it's a trillion dollar, you know, company. Uh, it just really doesn't happen that way, unfortunately. The aha moment that's most important is generally, wow, we are not selling our company a drill. We need to help them with holes. And that's what's really important is recognizing first and foremost, you have to empathize with your customer's struggle to get their job done. And that leads to then a whole bunch of processes that companies need to adopt to be really successful with jobs to be done. And that's the aha moment is kind of like, okay, we need to change our focus rather than talking about our product. We need to talk about the customer's job and their struggle. And you mentioned competing against luck by Clay Christensen, which is an amazing book. And I recommend uh, everybody. And the last third of it is, is really about adopting this process to organize your company around your customer's job rather than the processes your company needs to do, you know, and that's, that's, you know, obviously it seems like a very obvious thing, but it's very, very hard to do. So rather than kind of one aha moment, it's really about a process and an ongoing, keep working the problem for your customer and keep using the customer's job to measure how much value you're creating for your customer. And at the end of the day, that's why companies exist for to create customer value. And Jobs to be Done lets you make those into metrics. So I guess my next question for you is I'm thinking about there are so many people that were inspired by Clay's work or come, came across this, you know, from some of the other Deming derivatives or something, right? Yeah. And, and like the quarter inch hole, quarter inch drill is repeated so often it's almost a cliche, right? Yep. And yet... There is such a difference from those people who have gained a level of mastery with this versus yeah. the people who can just reiterate the cliche. And I'm interested in, for those of us who would like to create mastery in it, what, what tips do you have of what should we be doing repeatedly? How do we, how do we build our jaws to be done mus muscles? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way that we like to think about it is jobs to be done is a tool or an instrument and you have to learn how to play it. <laughs> mm. And I can tell you everything um, about an electric guitar. And I can tell you there are major minor chords. I can tell you that there are seven notes in a scale. You are not going to sound like Jimi Hendrix anytime soon, right? He's, he's got ten fingers and six strings on his guitar. He somehow seems better than everybody else. And that means that it really is practice. And there's some critical elements to the practice. One is really being able to think and differentiate between what's a job and what's a solution. And obviously either a product or service or technology. And that's where we see companies and people, you know, on product teams stumble initially is they think the job is to use an iPod, for example, you just to use an example that we always think, you know, iPod is not a job. Using an iPod is not a job. The job is to create a mood with music. And similarly with Apple and Google Maps. Yeah. Just, and, and to look cool because you have the newest yeah. Apple thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and Apple did that very successfully. Remember, everybody's headphone cords were black and Apple made them white. And they had this the ad campaign that was the silhouette of, of the guy with white headphones to differentiate. But Which that's an emotional Zune, job. One of the places Zoom totally dropped the ball. Right. Yeah. 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 And those are emotional jobs. So we can talk about that too. But generally, the underlying market is the functional job, meaning you're trying to create a mood with music. Or if you're using Apple and Google Maps, 
you're trying to get to destinations on time, or if you're a cardiovascular surgeon, you're trying to restore artery blood flow, or if you're an aircraft mechanic, you're trying to ensure aviation, you know, aircraft airworthiness. So the functional job is critical. What you're talking about there is feeling cool is what's known as an emotional job because you want to be perceived by others as, you know, hip or whatever it is. And that those those emotions are incredibly important. And you can even see that in getting to a destination on time. You want to be perceived as professional by others, right? So if you show up late to meetings, you know, people are going to think, ah, oh, that, that Jay guy, you know, he's not really professional. He's wasting our time. So those emotional elements are super, super. But the metrics that you can really get to when you're building a feature, when you're trying to build your product, relate to all the speed and accuracy of getting the job done. And what's interesting is that in any job, there's generally about 10 or 15 different steps and about 100 different metrics or customer needs that are independent of any solutions. And once you know those, getting good at understanding those and then measuring how fast and accurate either your product is getting the job done or your competitor's product is getting the job done, that's really the skill that will put you on the path to being Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> you know, so I'm thinking about this from a couple of different perspectives. My, I guess maybe the first one is this. So, you know, the thing that takes up most of my time these days is running our alternative asset management firm, Greystoke Investments, right? So we're doing a 506C raise, which means I can advertise my investment, but only take money from accredited investors. And we're trying to do these like Warren Buffett, counter-cyclical real estate investments that pay much higher cash flow, right? Like 7 to 14% cash flow out of these quarterly checks, right? And I, we were looking at some Hawaii properties. I went over and saw them last week. And the guy who we're looking at joint venture with actually just decided to become an investor of the fund, okay? And when we were talking, he's, he also owns an advertising agency. We're talking through this. And he really helped me see that like, what I really want to be in the business of is not selling real estate funds. What I want to be in the business of is like helping entrepreneurs become permanently wealthy because a bunch of us, like we make money, <laughs> we, we, we're pretty rich. We're not as rich. We're pretty rich. We're not as rich. And like really most of us, at least in my crowd, we like we became entrepreneurs so that we could have more passive income than expenses for the rest of our lives. But we keep not doing that. And we like own these businesses where we're like on the hamster wheel still, you know? And for like the last week, my brain is just like buzzing of like, yeah, what if I was in the business of helping like all these crazy people, my friends are like action sports guys or special ops veterans or entrepreneurs. He's like people who don't didn't follow the rules and climb the normal ladder. If I wanted to be in the business of helping them like get permanently wealthy, I probably need to like rethink the business. Like this is probably an element of that. Anyways, just with that little bit of premise, what are some of the first questions you'd have for me? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So the, the key, the critical thing you want to define is what job you're helping them with. And you could define it in, you know, a bunch of different ways. It could be optimizing cash flow, right? It's, it's freedom. Huh? Freedom. Yeah. Freedom. It's it's the freedom to choose whether they want to work or not. Yeah, and I'd say freedom is that's <laughs> a big word. And and this is what Clay has actually called the level of abstraction problem. Okay. And it's an important one to think about because 
ultimately you could say, oh, everybody wants to live a happy life. That's the job, right? Well, okay, sure. That, that's a little bit too big. Like, how do you build a single feature to launch in a product roadmap to, you know, live a happy life? And that's where you have to break the job domains, as I would call them, into specific markets. So are are you, the goal of, might be financial independence, right? So you could, you could even. Yeah, like, uh, what if it's like permanent wealth, so you have time freedom or something like that? Is that better or worse? Yeah, I, I, yeah, you can define it different ways. And this is one of the interesting things about jobs to be done is you're using language to try and be mathematical, <laughs> right? <laughs> which is inherently hard because language is not math. So you could achieve it. You could, you could define it as achieve financial independence, right? You could, you could define it as ensure stable cash flow, right? Because ultimately what you're trying to do is make sure you have that passive income. You could, you could define it as optimize an investment portfolio. There's different ways to think about the market. And the way that you figure that out is actually go talk to customers. So all these people, you know, whether it's the uh, military people, the entrepreneurs, you know, whoever is in your, your customer set, when you talk to them, ask them about their goals. And that's what, this is what's very interesting is like, they will be able to tell you what they're trying to do very specifically. They might not know the solution. In fact, they probably won't, right? Um, you okay. Could talk to a hundred cooks, so, and they're going to be able to tell you how, that they need to prepare food, but they're not going to be able to tell you they need a microwave. Right? <laughs> okay, so, so I'm one step ahead of you on this, and it's because yeah, I had Steve Blank from Sanford on the on the show in the fall, great. and afterwards he gave me like a little bit of free consulting. Right? He he like he did an extra hour with me, and just he let me pitch in my stuff and tell me what thing. And he was basically like, he's like Jess, I think you got something here. But I think you need to stop pitching and start asking. And so we have spent months asking before we redid the fund for this summer. And this is where it came back to over and over is I make a lot of money, but I don't have the time freedom that I want. I want more passive income than like I want enough passive income that I can decide whether to work or not. That's the response I keep getting. Yeah, great. So that could be the job. Generate passive income, you know, re generate recurring passive income. That's great. And you could analyze that. That's incredibly complex job, right? It probably has, you know, 20 steps and, you know, 100 or so needs. And in fact, you know, we've we've analyzed um, the job of limited partners investing in a private equity fund. So you can see that, which breaks down. There's probably, I think there's like 126 needs in there. So you could you can look at that and and that that might, you know, yeah, it's, what a, are it's some an examples analog of those to generating passive income. Sure. What are some examples of some of those that you found there? Yeah, sure. And we could happy to share that with you. Okay. It's in our ebook. So anybody who's interested in it can go download oh, it and take a look at it. And we, we give a, a bunch of examples, not just from the investment side, which is an interesting one specifically for you, since obviously, you know, that's the, the market that you're interested in, but also getting to a destination on time and ensuring aircraft airworthiness. So we're, we're looking at, you know, B2C and, mm. and B2B markets. And the key is when you look at any market to make sure you understand the goal, which is great because you've got this passive income you know, job that you're, you're obviously targeting. And then you want to make sure that you've got the beginning, middle, and end of the job. And mm -hmm. that's where you look at all the different job steps and you try and figure out, okay, what's the first step? What's the second step? And then what's the you know, final steps? So if you look at the job of, let me just pull it up here. Yeah. So similarly, if you were looking at investing in a private equity fund from a limited partner standpoint, 
And interestingly, of course, a limited partner is very similar to your passive in clients or customers because they're limited. They can't do anything active. They're literally look, looking for the investment manager to go make money for them passively almost. So there's there's I think 16 different steps, you know, determining the investive objectives, determining the level of risk, the investment criteria, identifying the funds, you know, I'm just looking at them right now. Yeah, and I'm looking through them and there's there you know, there's 126 different needs. 128. So everything through the process to dissolving the fund. Now, it's an analog to what you're doing because I assume your customers are not looking to just make an investment in a fund. They're looking for ongoing passive investments. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's and an if you're a fund manager, obviously you get in and out of funds, so it's a different experience. Yeah, well, this one's a it's an open-ended fund. So different than like a traditional PE that you know that that closes, right? So we pay quarterly, like they invest this quarter, they get paid this quarter. And they can redeem quarterly. They they could get in and out if they wanted. So it's a little, you know, some some similarities, some differences, right? But very much, you know, the rights of an LP are going to be very different, are going to be very similar to a closed-end LP like that, right? Very very much. Yeah, that's great. And that's what I would say is, so if you're going to innovate in that, because obviously the finance world is big, there are lots of investment opportunities. You know, you could invest in the Vanguard S&P 500, you could invest in, as you said, real estate funds, you know, there's all sorts of different funds out there. It's extremely mature and competitive. So if if, if you wanted my advice on how to use Jobs Done to innovate in that market, the way to do it would be to figure out where is there a segment of people that struggle that right now, currently, whatever whatever the fund offerings, whether it's Vanguard investment banks or you know PE firms or real estate funds, for some reason that's not doing it for them, right? Because they're struggling with this job in some way, and the key first step is understanding those struggles. And is that segment of customers big enough to even? look for innovation. And that's why sometimes we like to joke that our competitive advantage is we have no ideas <laughs> because when we're trying to figure out something like this, this uh, is a great example. If we were trying to figure this out, we wouldn't first start with like Jay's idea for a fund. We would first go say, okay, who is the most underserved segment in this market of people trying to generate passive income uh, or optimize their returns or whatever, however you want to define the job? And can we come up with ideas after we know their struggles that are clearly going to be innovative and create value for them? So it it is a process, but it's it's very, very similar. And that's why we can look at like getting to a destination on time yeah. or ensuring aircraft airworthiness or investing in a private equity fund, and they have the same structure because so, it's a customer trying to achieve a goal independent of a product. Here's where I think the underservedness shows up just from all these customer discovery calls we've been doing is these – these friends of ours, these people in our contact list, they spent 15, 20, 30 years becoming an expert at their business and they make a lot of money, but they didn't put those same hours into analyzing investments. But they feel a little bit dumb because they go golfing. Everybody's like, oh, I just did this crypto thing or I did that. And like, they, they feel like this insecurity that because they're rich, they're supposed to know everything about money, but they don't. They actually have a lot of anxiety about investments because they're like overwhelmed by the crazy amount of choice you know, and everybody's got such conflicting opinions. So like my thought is like a way to be different is like we don't know of any of our competitors who are like really serious about teaching them how to make their own decisions, like teaching Warren Buffett principles and helping them do enough practice to get their own confidence. And like, you know, obviously like private wealth management, people like that do a lot more handholding than the funds themselves. And we thought like, 
not that we want to become wealth managers, but like, what if we got much more involved in their life and we like created a community and an education thing and like our investment product was just, was just one of the answers for it, but we're helping them with more than just our stuff or something. Something that direction is maybe interesting for us to explore. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's, I would, that's where you can define the market. So those would be, in our view, from using Jossie Don, very, very, very different markets. Because Gen- the generate passive income, just using that as our hypothesis, is the actual investment job. Whereas if you're looking, learn how to make investments that generate passive income, you know, that's an education. And great, those two, they're obviously related. They're still in the domain of investments. But we would look at those as two very, very different markets. Not that they can't go together, but most entrepreneurial teams need help focusing. <laughs> and if nothing else, Jobs to be Done helps you prioritize what to focus on. And and of course, the the other element of this is if you have an innovation, let's say you have an innovation in learning invest to generate passive income, or you have an innovation in generating investments that generate passive income, everything else around those also is likely pretty different, meaning all of your go-to-market activities, your marketing, your sales, your business model, your costs, and how you generate revenue and profitability are very, very different. So... Once you understand the market and the customer's job to be done, you have to overlay all those other things that then create the business. So if if you have teams working on both those, great. You know, more power to you. you know, big companies have lots of products, right? But if you were an entrepreneur just saying, I'm starting from scratch tomorrow, and if you said, should I do these two things simultaneously? I would say, oh, maybe, but you've just probably lowered your probability of success because you have to get everything working really, really well together to be successful in any market. And trying to do that you know, in two markets simultaneously might be a struggle. Yeah. Well, obviously, we have a bunch of investment fund managers that come on the show, that listen to the show, things like that. But there's lots of people listening today who aren't. Thinking about the exercise we just went through there, how... How can listeners do a version of this for themselves on their own business, what we just did together? Yeah, so it's a process. And the, the first step is identifying your customers. And that seems relatively straightforward. And you would not be surprised probably in how many companies we work with where there's disagreement about who the customer is. And that's really fascinating because success begins and ends with your customer. Your customer is the, the reason companies exist and the reason, you know, teams exist at companies to serve them. So who is the customer? And getting a really good definition of that. And let me let me contrast the traditional way to define your customer with the jobs to be done way. And companies will also say, well, let's create personas around our customers, which makes sense because you want to have a description of a person, right? Even in B2B or medical markets, ultimately it's a person at the business that's a, a customer. It's not an entity. So you might create personas and you might create Paul and Kate, you know, who are one's young, one's old, one's rural, one's, you know, high school education, one's college education, obviously they're male and female. And you have these two very, very different customers. And you've described these personas as Paul and Kate to give your team a visualization of who your customer is. The problem with the personas, personas can be useful in some ways, but the problem with personas is they would never fall in the same segment. So Paul and Kate there, male and female, young and old, whatever, are very, very different customer segments based on their personas. But 
they could both struggle to get the same job in the same way. And so your investment example is a good one. Could two people with different genders, different incomes, different education, et cetera, both struggle to generate passive income? The answer, of course, is yes. Could they both struggle to get to destinations on time? The answer, of course, is yes. And the reason the customers sh shouldn't be defined by those personas is you want to define who's the job beneficiary. Who benefits from getting the job done successfully? And this is the, mm. the key first step. And the reason that that's important in the, our example of Paul and Kate here, these two personas, the reason they're both in the underserved segment is because they both struggle to get to destinations on time because they make frequent and unfamiliar stops. There are a lot of people who don't struggle to get to destination on time, like there are a lot of people who don't struggle to generate passive income. But the segment that struggles the most struggles the most because they execute the job in the same way, not because they're male or female or young or old or they live in Kansas or Florida, right? It, it has to do with the nature of the job. So that's the first step is make sure you define the customer correctly and then do the exercise we've just gone through. What is the job independent of any products or services? What are all the steps? What are all the needs? And then if you really want to do it correctly, that's where you run quantitative surveys uh, to measure customer effort. Because what you're trying to do is figure out who's struggling the most and segment those different sets of customers. And we can get into the quantitative methods if you want. But that's the process. Because then, then you have a huge foundation. Now you have a market of underserved customers who are willing to pay to get the job done. And now you can start coming up with ideas and innovation. I love it. Well, we like to cut these episodes in half. I think it's a great place to end part one. Everybody tune back in. I got a whole bunch more questions for Jay. Thanks, everybody.